Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Tony season once again. The 72nd Annual Tony Awards will be held on Sunday, June 10th, to recognize outstanding Broadway productions in the 2017-2018 season. We've gathered some of our favorite interviews with Tony nominees into one podcast that celebrates this season's breadth and diversity. First, Oscar and three-time Tony winner Mark Rylance and playwright, director, composer Claire Van Campen joined us in January to discuss Farinelli and the King. In March, Tony and Olivier Award-winning director Michael Grandage stopped by to discuss his production of Disney's Frozen. Then in May, three-time Tony Award nominee and Drama Desk Award winner David Yazbek guest-hosted the show and interviewed the musicians from his play The Band's Visit, who also performed live in the studio. That same week, actors Lauren Ridloff and Joshua Jackson joined us to discuss starring in the first-ever Broadway revival of Children of a Lesser God. And finally... Lauren Ambrose and Harry Haddon Patton, the stars of My Fair Lady, talked about starring in the new production of the much-loved musical at the Lincoln Center Theater. Let's start with Mark Rylance and Claire Van Campen. They spoke with guest host Martha Plimpton about the Shakespeare's Globe production of Farinelli and the King, written and scored by Van Campen. Rylance starred as King Philippe V of Spain. Farinelli and the King received five Tony nominations. Mark Rylance returns to Broadway in a new play written by longtime artistic collaborator Claire Van Campen. They also happen to be husband and wife. This play is about the strange relationship between the King of Spain and a celebrated castrato performer. King Philip V was subject to a crippling depression that could only be lifted by the glorious and unearthly sound of Farinelli's voice. Farinelli and the King is playing at the Blasco Theater on West 44th Street through March 25th. And I am so thrilled that it brings Mark Rylance and Claire Van Campen back to the show today. Welcome, you guys. Thanks, Martha. Thank you. Should we tell everybody that, which, full disclosure, we're friends. We know each other. Okay, so if we get goofy, just this is a good warning. I hope I don't laugh too loudly. Oh, I, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Uh, they can always adjust it in there. The people who are really in charge, they'll, they'll manage it. So tell me, is this play based on a on a true story? It's yes, it is and based on a true story. How really? did you come across it? How what how what what led you to the story? Well, you know, I spent most of my life as a composer, mm-hmm. and I work with historical music. And one day, I was working with um, a type of singer called a, a countertenor at the Globe. And in our tea break, he said, "Look, there's this great story about Farinelli." And I said, "Oh yes, I seem to remember there was a film in the '90s." And he said, "Yes, it was, it was great, but the film there's more story than the film." showed us and the best part of the story is the one that I've written. <laughs> how convenient. How, how convenient. That's marvelous. The play opens in a really wonderfully funny uh, way, but, but the image is also really arresting. Mark, what, tell us what the king is doing in the, uh, as the play begins. Well, Claire says he's had a bad day and mm-hmm. he's, he's walked by this goldfish in a little goldfish bowl and the fish has said look why don't we play a game the fish has spoken to him as fish do mm-hmm, and sure. said why don't we play a game of uh, 
of you trying to catch me or or not catch me and he's enjoying this this uh, uh this escape from his his life when the play opens he's fishing from a goldfish bowl i think you said there was some truth to this kind of thing yes the the king didn't want to uh actually catch fish he thought it was very cruel but he loved to go fishing so they're very worried that actually if they took him fishing, he'd A, catch a fish and B, drown in the river or whatever it was. So they gave him a bucket with a fish in it to fish in the garden. And he made sure that he never caught it. Really? So that is absolutely true. That's extraordinary. So does the king, so you say the fish has, told, has suggested they play a game. So tell me, without giving too much away or perhaps revealing your process too much, <laughs> Do, what what does he think is happening? Does he know the difference between reality and and fantasy, or or does he genuinely have a problem recognizing what's real and what's not? Or is he? That's or a very good question. I I I. Uh, I think he finds some of the things that uh, are going on in his world, the slavery that he's involved with, the wars, and the thing. He's just the wrong wrong soul for that job. He was. Mm. He was he was obsessed with clocks as a young man. He was Louis the Fourteenth's grandson, so he yes. was living in these palaces in France. He wasn't Spanish. Mm-hmm. He probably should have been put in a university or research lab somewhere, and he would have come up with incredible things. He was an incredible accountant and changed the tax system of Spain. And he was very a uh, wonderful warrior. We know from reports of people falling next to him that he wasn't some general back on a hill. He was right. down fighting. So he had he had very good skills in some areas, but he was hypersensitive. And, and his, at 17, his grandfather says, you're off to be the king of Spain, and he hated it. He right. just couldn't cope. So hating it so much, do you think in maybe that in a way he sort of identifies with the goldfish? Maybe, yeah, maybe. I, I think he just finds other realities more comfortable than... The, the surrealist, uh, violent reality that he was in charge of. Mm-hmm. And what do we know about uh, his mind or his illness or his condition at the beginning of the, or throughout, you know, in, in history, historically? What do we know about his depression, Claire? It was actually more severe than I've um, portrayed in the play because I've, I felt actually if I really told the whole story warts and all people would would sort of throw up probably Mm. and leave the theater it Mm. was very bad at times Um, we don't really know what that condition was I suspect that he was probably on the spectrum as Mm. we would say but he also had a very severe bipolar disorder as well so that's what we might he might be diagnosed with today I think so Um, I don't think it was schizophrenia I think it was a a more acute form of bipolar but it made life extremely difficult for him and for his wife Isabella Mm -hmm. who uh, really had to put up with this day and night and his hours were completely upside down he was nocturnal Mm -hmm. so he um, went to bed at seven in the morning and he had lunch at five. That sounds like afternoon. me when I'm going through a rough patch. <laughs> <laughs> I could uh, advise yeah. a goldfish in yeah, a bowl. Maybe a goldfish. Yeah, maybe I should. Yeah. yeah, that's a good idea. Thank yeah. you. So, but at the time, I mean, obviously, mental illness perceived a completely different way. You know, back then, was it seen as a, you know a spiritual affliction? More than a, a sort of medical situation? Well, the play... Or a demonic possession or well, something like that? Yes, the play is set uh, really at the uh, dawn of the Age of Enlightenment um, mm. and when all these philosophies were being discussed and it was sort of um, the, the consciousness of man versus um, the, the law of the Bible. 
basically. So it's church versus um, people taking their own lives into their own hands. So would a priest be more likely to treat someone with this type of Absolutely. They they would uh, prescribe an exorcist. Right. for him and they did and uh there was a there was a movement in seville of uh what we would now call music therapists who were beginning to understand that music had a tremendous impact on mental illness for the good and so in in effect the queen was responding to this by advising um you know, in fact she was advised to to find music to that might help the king's condition which of course she does she goes and finds farinelli This is Martha Plimpton, and I'm speaking with Mark Rylance, who stars in Farinelli and the King, written by Claire Van Kampen, and this is WNYC. So, there is a doctor, though. There is a doctor. Okay. Dr. Servi. All right. And tell us about this talk, doctor. What's his deal? In in actual fact, he he arrived um, with Isabella when she became the King's second wife. But in our story, um, he is very much on the side of the Age of Enlightenment. He Mm -hmm. is what we would consider a a modern doctor in the way that he's thinking about mental illness. He knows that you probably can't cure the King's condition, but you can really help it. And he perceives that Farinelli has done something wonderful. He doesn't know how or why it works. And the play goes on to show us that process. So Mark, life of an actor, as mm. we both know, is can have some ups and downs as well. Periods of working and not working and and uh, and you know, we live somewhat in the public eye, a bit by choice, but sometimes not so much. Mm. How do you identify with Philip? Do you identify with him in his position? Yeah, there's a sense of um, <clears throat> there's a sense of uh, separation as an actor. I don't know if you feel this way too, but there's a sense of when you're playing, of a part of you being watch- watching yourself yes. playing. Well, a part of you saying, "Wait, wait, wait! They're still making noise. Now speak." Yes. Or wait, that person said something. Wait, you're still thinking. Now speak. There, or, or maybe move here. Or keep still. Or there's there's little like um. Little and subtler things than that too. Like, mm. That was terrible. <laughs> go, go forward and apologize. <laughs> last night there was a last night there was a moment early on in the play where I did something and someone in the front row went, "Oh Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> oh Jesus," and I spent the rest of the night thinking, "Now was that because the fish had died? Was yeah. that because of the, or was it because I I made I mugged at that moment and made a big face and they were thinking, oh." Jesus, this guy's terrible. That, that reminds me of one time I was doing Hedda Gabler in Chicago, and there's a point towards the end where she pulls out these pistols and she's going to give them to Love Borg. And it was very dramatic, and the lighting was really intense, and it was a really quiet, beautiful, intense, scary moment. And this little old lady in like, third row yells out really loud, What a word. <laughs> I'm Martha Plimpton, and I'm speaking with Mark Rylance, who stars in Farinelli and the King on Broadway, and Claire Van Campen, who wrote the show. You're listening to Midday on WNYC, and we'll be right back after a break. Martha Plimpton, and I'm speaking with Mark Rylance and Claire Van Campen, the lead actor and the playwright, respectively, of Farinelli and the King, which is now on Broadway at uh, the Velasco Theatre. So, Claire, 
How how did he come to the throne? Let's talk about Philip for a second. How did he how did he ascend? Well, he was he was 17 years old and he was the grandson of Louis XIV, who who was called the Sun King. He's a remarkable, huge, charismatic presence in France. And it's a French family. And uh, France at that point owned Spain or owned the right to the throne, let's say. And they didn't want to give that up. But there was no one to take over the throne um, unless this poor chap, Philip, age 17, went and did it. So his grandfather kind of pointed at him and said, it's you, it's your job, off you go. Oi. Which was very tough because he <laughs> oi. was, oi. That's what he said. <laughs> oi, he said to his grandfather. Oi, oi, why would I do that? <laughs> um, but he, off he went and he hated it. Um, he hated, he, did, he never learned to speak Spanish. Wow. Everyone had to speak French to him. He hated the Spanish food. He had his wife um, cook onion soup for him in their little apartment in the palace rather than eat anything else. No, he was very, very picky. And was he he briefly deposed during some of these periods of inertia? He wasn't wasn't deposed, but he did... uh, abdicate, self-abdicate. At, mm. s- at one point, he said, I've really had enough. I'm going to quit. They moved out of the palace. They went to live in, in the country. Mm. And his son took over, but then his son got ill and died. So he had to come back. Oh. So it was sort of always meant to be, really. Um, but a strange fate uh, over which he had no choice whatsoever. And then along comes Farinelli. So, uh, Farinelli is a... He's a castrato. Yes. He's a castrato who was born in Italy, and uh, he was castrated at the age of 10 by his brother, which was quite a fashion at that time in Italy, usually with poorer families, to try and get on the whole parade of being a superstar, Mm -hmm. castrato. Um, In fact, he became a superstar, probably equivalent to Michael Jackson or Madonna (laughs) in his time. Really? And he sang for all the crowned heads of Europe and every opera house, and he was gazillion rich. I mean, he really was super rich. Um, So he had no need to come and sing in Spain to this poor, sick person. Um, and but he did, and he never returned to his life. He gave up singing in public. What after was he? he Thirty-two. Sang to the king. Thirty-two years so old. So he was still at the height of his at career. At the prime, at the prime of his career. Mm. But before that happens, he's got this. He develops this relationship with this king, who responds to his voice, to he, his singing. He gives up his career just to sing for this king mm-hmm. in his darkened bedroom through the night. The same song over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So the same song over and sometimes, over. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, yeah. Depending on the king's health. So that's the other interesting question of the play: why, why someone like that would do that? Well, now, but, but the king begins, to, or or maybe perhaps others begin to perceive that this voice, this this song, this man, who, this castrato, is a, almost like a cure, yeah. in a way. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and does the king perceive that as well, or is he just drawn to him, just drawn to the sort of magic of this voice? Does he feel in need of a cure? There's something about dis-ease or disharmony, isn't there, that somehow the music, the resonance of the music... I mean, I get eight, eight times a week the, the uh, Yeston and James singing right next to me, and it, it literally shakes your cells. Mm. You, can, you can feel it vibrating through you. Uh, so it's 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 difficult to think about other things, but it feels like it settles it settles you like like um 
making a, a, a protein shake or something <laughs> like that. It shakes. You're one of those weird mm -hmm. exercise things in gyms. So it, it feels like it, it, it uh, organizes your, your psyche in a way. Do we know what that voice would have sounded like? We, we can we never know idea? for sure. There is a recording of, uh, it's called The Last Castrato. He's called Moreski, but he's quite old when he makes it. And he was never very, very good. So mm. it, you shouldn't really go on that. He's no Farinelli. No, he's no Farinelli. He never mm. was. We think it was a combination of a boy soprano and a sort of um, a tenor. Okay. So a voice that we will never hopefully hear again. Yes, exactly. In that way. And but was there music that was specifically written for that voice mm. at the time? Yes. Mm. It was a whole sort of subgenre, well, not subgenre, but Yeah, it, you're right. Yeah? It was. It was a, a sort of um, a, a new species of voice mm -hmm. and uh, composers especially Handel went crazy about mm -hmm. it and they became sort of these rare rather like American football stars you know rare rare players on the opera stage they and were very big men they were, weren't they they were big yes their chests were big and their heads were big yes and they, they, and, well that's and good they for resonance very, they yeah. had very active sexual lives too they, they, they shot blanks obviously so they, they were a very appealing oh yeah good point good women point. went crazy <laughs> yeah, for them I mean I bet. rich aristocratic women just chucked money at yeah. them because oh, you know they they were beautiful as well really stunning looking a lot of them so is it would it be fair or would it be not so fair to to sort of psychoanalyze farinelli retrospectively as we sort of have the king a little bit and talk about the effect of this you know having been castrated by his brother and and also the death of his father right yes um uh which you know, let's talk about that. How how would those events have made him drawn to well, to the king? Often there's a kind of sacrifice, isn't there, for for, for performers or sports people? Mm. There, there's a there's a coming back to Michael Jackson again. The sacrifice of his youth. I don't know a lot about Michael, but mm -hmm. one gets the impression that he didn't get out to play in playgrounds no. with other kids when he was younger. And so there's that divided self, as Claire imagines Farinelli. Of this, of this boy who suffers this very violent uh, castration, and then this this very powerful, much loved, successful performer, and and how to keep those two experiences married together, uh, mm. not not let them split you into a dysfunctional person, and I think the king, I, I think there's a there's an empathy develops between the two of them, at least in the way Claire imagines the play. Yes, Very I, much so. I think they, but they're both damaged men. Uh, what has happened to them has damaged them emotionally uh, and physically mm -hmm. um, to some degree. And they recognize that in each other. And somehow it cancels it out for mm. each of them because they've seen somebody like them. Right. They kind of feel whole when they're together. Yeah. Um, and I think Farinelli finds the king an extraordinary person, which he was. Um, wildly entertaining because the king's sense of reality is very different and there was so much there to feed Farinelli mm. I think he thought well why would I go back and just repeat what I've been doing I'm rich enough I don't need the money this guy needs me and actually I need him mm. and so that's sort of very much the bedrock of the play I'm speaking with Claire Van Campen playwright of Farinelli and the King and her husband Mark Rylance, who stars in the play as the king. And this is WNYC and WNYC.org.
So, Claire, how did you, because of your history with being a musician composer, and, and uh, which is a, a very illustrious one, of course, okay. but how, how did you choose to, to deal with the music in this play, given, given the absence of an actual available castrato in, in these times? Well, I started from the premise that what, what our audiences need to experience is a wonderful voice, mm. a voice that moves them and inspires them. And I was actually doing some very menial task at home, like sort of dusting or something like that, when I heard on the radio this magical voice. Uh, it was Yestin Davies, and he was singing um, around Christmas time. I think it might have been the Messiah, and uh, I just stopped and just stood and listened, and was changed really by it. I just felt fundamentally altered by that amazing voice, and uh, I phoned him up and I said, "Listen, I think you should um, think about singing Farinelli in, in my play." And he said, "Well, I'm not. I'm not a castrato. I can't <laughs> sing." But he said, "Well, actually, no. I, I I can't sing those arias that Farinelli sang. The very high mm. arias. I'm not a sopranist." And I said, "No, I d we can't replicate Farinelli's voice. Nor do we want to. We want to replicate the feeling." And I think Yestin brings that feeling to the show because mm. a Broadway audience is not used to hearing an opera singer on stage. No, that's true. And a lot of our audiences, though very sophisticated, have not been to a Baroque opera. They will never have heard that voice mm. live. Mm. And their faces, when they're listening to him, are exactly what I want. He, he is magical. It's wonderful. He's wonderful. Yes. He's... Uh, and And... He's a counter tenor, tenor, right? Yes, he is. Okay, and it, that's it, it's not similar. Is it similar to the voice? Well, you might? It, in a way, because it's it's not using the broken male voice. I mean, these are all um, proper men, you know, mm -hmm. who are the singers in our show. Um, they are able to sing in their normal uh, chest register, but they've trained their voices to sing in a kind of falsetto. Uh, which is also, if they would call it, their other voice. So Yestin was enormously helpful in helping me choose the arias for our show, which songs we use. Oh, good, because I, I was going to ask you yeah. about how you how you chose those pieces. Well, some of them are famous, um, like last year at the end of the show, which many people have heard. But there are some very unique arias that people won't have heard that really suit the story. Um, so I had two things in mind. One finding a, a song that suited Yestin's voice to show it off in its beauty mm. and two, to actually fit with the story rather like songs in a musical. Yeah, which works very well, by oh, the way. Thank you. Yeah, it's really beautifully done. I mean, it's really sort of seamless and very natural. Um, did he sort of, did Farinelli sort of believe he was sort of a divided self anyway, two people? I think, I think he did. I think he was searching for an identity that wasn't through voice, um, you know, mm -hmm. that wonderful word persona, you know, through sound. Um, I think that the Farinelli part of him was that persona. Mm -hmm. And that when he came to Spain, he found himself as Carlo Broski, which is, is his real name. Mm -hmm. And he, begin, he, he began to do a lot of other things uh, other than sing. He reformed a lot of um, uh, things in the town, like changed the course of the river. Right. Um, helped reform the town sewers, all kinds right. of public works that he devoted himself to. Wow. Um, so he, he sort of found himself as a man, uh, actually, mm. which is very interesting to me. And um, in, it, maybe if we do the film version, I'd want to show that a little bit more. Mark, are you also a musician? 
I was in my high school days, Martha. I played bass in a band. Nice. Yeah. I, I would play a whole lot of love far too slowly. And then the guitarist would speed it up. We did a few dances. But I you do have sing. a particular affinity for music and for poetry. Yeah. Which is musical in its own way, and particularly the poetry of Lewis Jenkins. Yeah. Right? Who, whom you've recited, you know, when you've won your Tony Awards. Yeah. And people were baffled. I thought it was very cool. <laughs> a lot of people thought it was very cool. Some people were baffled, but yeah. we don't worry about them. Um, do you think poetry has the same sort of healing power that, that the music had for King Philip? This is a good question. Yeah, it does for me. I... I I've, I find it can really help me mm. uh, lift my mood or mm -hmm. settle my mood. There's something distilling about it that something mm -hmm. reminds you. A good poet reminds you of the essential things and and uh, and something you know something you can move towards. Sort of I bypassing guess. the rational and moving into a more sort of essential yeah. other part of ourselves. Yeah, well, the rational gets increasingly irrational, yeah. doesn't it? So, <laughs> yeah. Yes, I find it very, very uh, similar to music, good poetry. Mm. Re really can, uh, re can really change my day. Mm -hmm. mm. So, did, Claire, did you write this role for Mark or with Mark in mind? No, I mean... You'd Was think, that the intention or you'd no? Think, you'd think that I did, um, wouldn't you? And it, in fact, it's impossible, I think, to write anything if you're, um, if you're lucky enough to have worked with someone of Mark's calibre for 28 years, as I have, mm -hmm. um, not to be inspired by that when you're writing a role. But I never, ever thought he would play it. I mean, it, it's first Really? Outing. Why not? Well, because at the time it was scheduled to, to go on, this play, um, he wasn't free. He mm. was, I think, doing a movie or something. And then the dates shifted, and I just didn't like to kind of push my advantage and <laughs> say, oh, I really want you to do it. But I sort of did, of yes. course. And he read it, I think, on a train going down to a location to, sh to shoot and phoned me up from the train and said, oh, it's wonderful. I really want to do it. I've never done a part like this. So, of course, I was rather pleased. That's lovely. <laughs> and uh, you both, you've worked together many times, as you yeah. mentioned, uh, mm. for a long time. But um, And most recently, you worked together adapting uh, Jenkins' poetry, who we were just talking mm. about, mm. into uh, a stage play, which I was lucky enough to see in London last year, called Nice Fish. That's right. <laughs> we did it over at St. Anne's in Oh, that's in, right. In you Brooklyn did before, as well. Yeah, yeah before did. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I remember he, being in London at the time and going, oh, I missed this at St. Anne's. I want to go see it while I'm here. But is there, a, is there a similarity between these two works thematically to you guys, between Farinelli and The King and Nice Fish at all? Somehow in the realm of sort of language, sound? I, th I think so. Rhythm. I think we're both attracted, as Mark has said, by the more poetic um, expression in mm -hmm. life, uh, really. And uh, it, there's altered states of reality in, in Nice Fish as there mm -hmm. are in Farinelli, and that's intriguing to us mm -hmm. as well. Mm. And does it, it, Nice Fish also sort of invokes a, a sort of healing element to it, doesn't it? In, in the way we hear things or the, way the healing sort of nature of sound and rhythm? Mm. I said mm. frozen water, isn't it? Yes, uh, water, yes. Water carries memory, doesn't it? And uh, when it freezes, the memories freeze. And when it starts to thaw, so do the memories get released. So I think it, there's something in that with Nice Fish and Mark's character's journey uh, mm -hmm. through that play. The actors interact with the audience a little bit before the play starts, which is something you have a lot of experience with, Mark, right? 
Well, I I, I realized a few years ago that the, if I look at the best experiences I've had in the theater, I feel like I'm in the same room with the actors. I, I, I'm not just sitting back watching Brutus and Cassius kill, right. <laughs> kill them. The emperor on the other side of the, of the fourth Caesar. wall. I'm yes. in the room with yes. them, mm-hmm. and and Sam Wanamaker's Globe Project uh, really taught me that, and that that was what what uh, that was the architecture Shakespeare thrived in, and right. and and contributed to to the beauty of of his plays, and and um, so so I I like to I, I I like in a production that I'm in for there to be something that encourages the audience to try and reduce the technology that though it has benefits it can it can also separate the stage into a different room than where the audience is but what you've done is bring the audience on stage with you in fact as well in this production they're they're behind um barriers they're safe mm-hmm. you know yes not, yes not no they're not <laughs> getting no, they're not sitting there you know on on the actual set furniture but but they are sort of in these sort of boxes these sort of almost like yeah. opera boxes yeah. up yes. on stage yeah. Um, and so, and, and what? So for for that reason, being in the room with them, that helps that obviously for you. Yeah. So we're speaking with them rather than to them or for right. them or at them. But they they um they 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 are part of it. And right. do you feel like the other actors also are affected by that in their performance as well as well as the audience's perception of what they're seeing, experiencing. We try to. We try to. We're not amped. We're not. Uh, we aren't amplified. And there's there's candlelight, which is supported with cleverly hidden other electrical lights. But right. there aren't. There, we don't change the lighting state, and it's it's free movement. So mm-hmm. we move where we. We, we need to and where we want to. It's well, very much the language of the globe. Yes. Uh, it's where mm. we It really, is reminiscent of the globe. Yeah. Sort of mm. the closest some people will come to, to being at the globe that's in a right. way. That's right. That's right. And and I think yeah. at the globe, what's interesting is that you can, when you see the actors, you see audience on the other side of the actors. So you're seeing the play not only through the actors, but through the audience. Mm-hmm. So it's the same system really it's an uh, extraordinary in, experience in it's really beautiful and i'm Aww. so glad i got a chance to see it and i'm so glad you two came in and, and chatted thank with me you. about it thank you so much i'm martha plimpton and i've been speaking with mark rylance who stars in farinelli and the king on broadway and claire van campen who wrote the show thank you both so much for being here today it's really been a pleasure thank thanks you,